Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Back in 1906, Dr. Duncan McDougall of Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital became interested in answering a question that had confounded scientists and theologians alike since practically the beginning of recorded history. Namely, do people have a soul, and does that soul leave the body after death? Dr. McDougall believed the soul was a real physical thing, and therefore must have mass. Ergo, this would mean the human body would show a measurable drop in weight at the moment of death. In order to conduct his experiment, he constructed a special bed in his office built on a powerful scale that was sensitive to within two-tenths of an ounce. He then tested his scale on six different patients in the final stages of different terminal illnesses. Four of the patients were dying of tuberculosis, one from diabetes and one from unspecified causes. When each of these patients' times were near, he placed them in his experimental bed and waited for them to expire. He factored in a bunch of variables that might cause a decrease in weight, such as a sudden expulsion of air from the lungs, water vapor, and so on. But after taking each of these factors into account, Dr. McDougall did claim to note a minor but measurable loss of weight in each patient. He went on to publish his results in the medical journal American Medicine, and from there the spiritualist community took these results as a validation of everything they believed and ran with it. It became a common maxim that the human soul weighed 21 grams, based on the weight loss Dr. McDougall noted in his first test case. Skeptics were quick to point out that Dr. McDougall's findings weren't really proof of anything. They said his methodology was flawed in that six patients made too small of a sample size for valid scientific study. There was also the issue that his results fluctuated wildly in all six instances. Even Dr. McDougall admitted in his own journal article that the experiment would need to be repeated many times before any real conclusions could be drawn. But none of this derailed what people already believed. As Samuel Johnson once wrote regarding the paranormal, all argument is against it, but all belief is for it. Believers in the soul and the afterlife take great comfort in knowing that the end of life isn't really the end. The entire spiritualism movement was built on the idea that we go on in some ethereal form. It's an appealing idea. After all, if death is not the end, then doesn't that mean we have another chance to get it right? Science has always sought to provide practical explanations to the mysteries of life we can't explain. But the search for life after death is one of those conundrums that many mainstream scientists shy away from. Partly because the scientist would be diving headfirst into a theological hornet's nest, but also out of fear of ridicule from their peers. But, despite this reticence on the parts of some scientists, throughout history there have been several individuals, like Dr. McDougall, who have attempted to scientifically prove that there really is life after death. 
One of the most notable studies into the paranormal began during the 1930s at North Carolina's Duke University. For several decades, this respected university became home to the very first department of parapsychology. This group of scientists studied some of the strangest and most terrifying paranormal cases in history. And in many ways, they were the very real Ghostbusters. I'm Nate Hale, and I ain't afraid of no ghosts. And this is The Conspirators. In 1894, a noted British physicist named Sir Oliver Lodge made a major scientific breakthrough by developing a device that could detect radio waves known as a coherer. His discovery became an essential component in Marconi's own inventions. But Oliver Lodge had another side to himself that brought him a great deal of controversy in his scientific career. Because Lodge was also a devout follower of spiritualism. And he believed his inventions, which allowed voices to travel through invisible waves in the air, might also one day be able to detect voices from beyond the grave as well. In 1920, a New York skeptic named Joseph Rian offered Lodge $5,000 to come up with definitive proof of life after death. Lodge, who had lost a son in World War I, would have loved nothing better than to communicate with him in the afterlife. But he ultimately declined Rian's offer by pointing out, You can't always get what you want just by throwing money at it. This was the sort of disdain scientists encountered when they publicly announced they were researching subjects related to the paranormal. Oftentimes, researchers who strayed too far outside what was considered mainstream science were shunned and ridiculed by their peers in the scientific community. But even still, scientific research into the paranormal persisted. In 1930, a young botanist named Joseph Banks Rhine, better known as J.B. Rhine, set up the world's first parapsychology laboratory at Duke University. Rhine was a bit of a conundrum in the scientific community. When he was a 23-year-old sergeant in the Marines, he won the President's Match, a sniper competition open to all branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. And although he was trained as a botanist, he became fascinated by the work of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle physician and creator of Sherlock Holmes, who also happened to be one of the biggest evangelists of spiritualism in the world. Like Doyle, Ryan believed fervently that the paranormal could be proven through rigorous scientific study. After teaching botany for a year at the Boyce Thompson Institute in Yonkers, New York, Ryan enrolled in the psychology department at Harvard, where he came under the tutelage of Professor William McDougall. No relation to Duncan McDougall, by the way. William McDougall was a highly respected psychologist who also had a keen interest in psychic research. He served for a time as the president of the American Society for Psychical Research, and he encouraged J.B. Ryan's own paranormal research as well. In 1927, Ryan followed McDougall to Duke University in North Carolina, and it's there that he both coined the term parapsychology, as well as started the first university-approved institute for its study. Much of Ryan's focus was about the untapped potential of the human mind, namely his belief that certain individuals were possessed of latent psychic abilities that could potentially explain all manner of supernatural phenomena, including ghosts. 
But despite being a vocal supporter of the paranormal, it was Ryan's scientific side that got him in trouble with the spiritualists, including his idol, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This happened in 1926 after Ryan helped expose a noted medium, Mina Crandon, as a fraud. Crandon was the wife of a respected Boston surgeon, Roy G. Crandon. Mina made quite a name for herself in the spiritualist community because of her tendency to perform her seances completely in the nude. During a typical seance, Mina would spread her legs and produce what was described as a tongue-like projection that was vaguely shaped like a human hand. Several spiritualist debunkers, including the legendary Harry Houdini, attended some of Mina's seances and came away unimpressed. The general consensus by the debunkers was that Mina used a bunch of pretty standard magician's tricks that she got away with by using her nudity to distract the men in her audience. For example, it's widely suspected that the slimy phantom hand she produced was just a hunk of raw liver. J.B. Ryan and his wife, Louisa, attended one of Crandon's seances, in which he observed her kicking a megaphone around to give the impression it was moving on its own. Ryan turned in a scathing report to the American Society for Psychical Research about Mina Crandon's trickery. But the society hem-hawed about publishing it because the Crandons were respected members of the group. So Ryan ended up publishing his paper with the Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, something that many spiritualists saw as a major betrayal. A number of people rose up to defend Mina Crandon, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle even published an article in a Boston newspaper in which he claimed, and I quote, J.B. Ryan is an ass. But being ostracized by the spiritualist community didn't deter Ryan from his research. He later resigned from the Society for Psychical Research and continued to test his theory that all the experiences we believed were ghosts were really manifestations of human psychic abilities. At Duke University, Professor Ryan focused his research on four primary psychic abilities he thought people possessed. Telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. In 1934, Ryan asked his fellow psychologist Carl Zener for help in designing a deck of cards featuring a set of symbols, a circle, square, star, cross, and wavy lines. You're probably familiar with this experiment, in which a researcher holds up each card and asks the test subject to guess what they were. In fact, the entire opening scene in the 1984 version of Ghostbusters was based on Dr. Ryan's experiments. By far, Ryan's biggest success story during his ESP tests was a 26-year-old divinity student named Hubert Pierce. In his first test with the Zener cards, Pierce got 10 cards in a row right. Simple chance would dictate that an individual should get at best 20% of his guesses correct. For two years, Pierce was the shining star of Ryan's study. Once, he produced 25 consecutive correct guesses. During that particular test, he started off not doing well at all. But then Ryan bet Hubert $100 that he couldn't guess the next card. The financial incentive worked remarkably well on the impoverished student. After all, $100 was a small fortune in those days. After Hubert got that card right, Ryan bet him he couldn't do it again, and again, and again. By the time their run was done, Ryan owed Hubert $2,500, although that amount was far beyond the department's budget and Ryan never paid up. But then one day, Hubert suffered a bad breakup with his girlfriend, and his psychic abilities abruptly vanished. 
This is something that constantly frustrated Professor Ryan about his test subjects. The one big drawback Ryan saw in all his ESP test subjects were that their abilities appeared to be inextricably linked to the individual's emotional state. When the individual is upset or otherwise distracted, their abilities vanished. In his first year, Ryan conducted 10,000 ESP trials with 63 students. Once word began to leak out about the work Dr. Ryan's parapsychology lab was doing, news stories began appearing in major publications like Time, Life, and the New York Times. This subsequently brought the attention of several powerful and influential people with an interest in the paranormal. One of his biggest benefactors early on was Francis Bolton, wife of Ohio Congressman Chester C. Bolton, who provided considerable funding for Ryan's work in the hope that he would be able to prove the existence of the afterlife. Ryan had to convince her that his work with telepathy was the key to proving life after death. For as much of Ryan's work involved the paranormal, he always tended to shy away from admitting he was studying ghosts. His ESP work had an air of respectability to it among his peers, but ghosts? No, that was a bridge too far for some. Another major supporter of Ryan's work was Eugene F. McDonald, founder and president of the Zenith Radio Corporation. He convinced Professor Ryan to conduct a series of ESP experiments over the radio. Ryan was reluctant to agree at first, thinking it sounded a bit like a carnival sideshow. But McDonald was not a man to take no for an answer. So in 1937, Ryan conducted several mental telepathy tests over the nation's airwaves. Zenith printed their own set of ESP test cards for the folks at home to play along. They sold out their entire stock after the first broadcast and had to print more. In 1934, Ryan published his first book in which he detailed his findings titled Extrasensory Perception. It was a huge success. Even some of Ryan's fiercest critics had a difficult time dismissing the man's dedication to the scientific method, even if they remained unconvinced with his results. Ryan managed to get the attention of some pretty big names in academia who expressed appreciation for his work. One of these was Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, who shared with Ryan some of his own encounters with patients who exhibited what appeared to be psychic abilities. Undoubtedly, the biggest name in science Ryan ended up corresponding with was Albert Einstein. Einstein was always cordial to Ryan, although he remained skeptical of the man's work. Einstein did admit, though, that he had somewhat softened his views on the supernatural after reading the work of parapsychologist Jan Ehrenwald. All the press coverage Ryan received following the publication of his book also led to his department being bombarded with letters from desperate people looking for answers to their own paranormal mysteries. One letter received in 1960 described a man's fears of being followed around by a shadow creature invisible to everyone but him. There was a man on death row who claimed his innocence who begged for their psychic help in locating the real murderer. In 1963, a letter from someone in Boston begged for the Institute's psychic assistance in solving the Boston Strangler murders. Hauntings, strange disappearances, UFOs, precognition. The list went on and on of people seeking answers to the unexplainable. By the 1960s, they were receiving on average 100 letters a day. 
One of the most famous cases they ever looked into came from a letter they received in 1949 from a priest in Washington, D.C. named Luther Schultz, who began, We have in our congregation a family who are being disturbed by poltergeist phenomena. It first appeared about January 15, 1949. The family consists of the maternal grandmother, a 14-year-old boy who is an only child, and his parents. The phenomena is present only in the boy's presence. I had him in my home on the night of February 17th through 18th to observe for myself. Chairs moved with him and one threw him out. His bed shook whenever he was in it. The letter went on to state that words appeared on the boy's body and that he had visions of the devil and goes into a trance and speaks in a strange language. If all that sounds like a scene from The Exorcist, that's because this was the very real possession case that would inspire the book and movie. In 1949, a team of Jesuit priests in St. Louis would perform an exorcism on the young man who went under the pseudonym of Roland Doe. The young man's real name was thought to be Ronald Hunkler, but since there's still some things about this case that have never been fully revealed, we'll just call him Roland from here on out. In January 1949, Roland became despondent after his beloved Aunt Harriet, a devoted spiritualist, died. Before her death, Aunt Harriet taught Roland how to use a Ouija board, and according to the story, following her death, Roland turned to the board to reach out to her beyond the grave. Only if we're to believe this version of the tale, Roland came into contact with something much, much darker. It started with Roland hearing strange scratching noises and other weird sounds coming from inside the walls of his Washington, D.C. home. After that, objects began to move around him, including the bed he slept on. Roland's parents became terrified when Roland's entire personality began to change. He would lash out angrily at them, growling at them in a different voice, sometimes spouting phrases in Latin, a language Roland did not know. A local Catholic priest, Father E. Albert Hughes, attempted the first exorcism on the boy in late February of 1949. But the exorcism came to an abrupt halt when Roland broke off a piece of bedspring from the mattress he was tied down to and slashed the priest across the back with it. Over the following days, red marks began appearing on Roland's body that sometimes formed words. One of those words was Lewis, which Roland's deeply religious mother took to mean they might find hope in St. Louis. This led them to take the boy to a team of Jesuit priests who performed their own exorcism. This exorcism went on every day for the next two months, during which Roland would go through periods where he sometimes acted perfectly normal during the day, but would lash out violently at night or whenever he was in the presence of the priests. In April 1949, the exorcism ended when Roland claimed to have had a vision of the angel Michaels coming to save him, after which the demons left him forever and all the paranormal activity came to an abrupt end. It certainly makes for a great scary story, but other researchers who have looked into the case in more recent years have discovered some very telling details that paint Roland Doe's possession in a much different light. The last living witness to the exorcism was Father Walter Halloran, who assisted in the ritual when he was 27 years old. When he was interviewed in 2005, Halloran said he was never convinced the boy was truly possessed. He said that Roland had a history of aggressive, bullying behavior long before he allegedly became possessed. He also didn't think many of the strange behaviors the young man exhibited during the exorcism were all that extraordinary. 
Most of the Latin phrases he spoke appeared to have been parroted back at the priests from things they said to him. Many of the marks on his skin appeared to be self-inflicted, and in fact some of them looked suspiciously like his mother's lipstick. As for the bed moving around the room, Father Halloran pointed out that it was on rollers. J.B. Ryan became interested in the case of Roland Doe for a while, although it's apparent from the letters he wrote that his interest began to wane over time. Ever the scientist, Ryan remained skeptical of the young man's alleged demonic possession, and by the time he finally agreed to meet with Luther Schultz, the exorcism had already been performed, and Roland Doe was declared to be cured of his demonic possession. But the story of Roland Doe isn't the only case of ghosts or demonic possession ever investigated by the Duke University Parapsychology Department, nor is it the only one to inspire a well-known movie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we continue, I want to take a moment to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I can tell you from personal experience how easy it was to shop their website, and I can also tell you with confidence that Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they illuminate order. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like the first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going in on dates, or just everyday life. I recently got a bunch of great-looking and great-fitting clothes from their easy-to-use website. So far, I've tried their premium socks and underwear, along with a really sharp-looking button-up Oxford shirt, one of their men's t-shirts, and my personal favorite, their super comfy Ace Half-Zip Pullover. My new Oxford looks great around the office, and I've worn my Half-Zip Pullover pretty much everywhere. Right now, listeners to The Conspirators can get 20% off their first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering promo code CONSPIRATORS. If you're interested in getting 20% off your first order, you can find the link and the promo code in the show notes. And now, back to the show. There's another famous case the Duke Parapsychology Institute investigated that began in 1958. In a quaint three-bedroom ranch-style home in Seaford, New York. Seaford is a quiet suburb about 30 miles away from New York City on Long Island. It was a relatively new subdivision with the house at 1648 Redwood Path, having just been built five years earlier. There was really nothing terribly exceptional about the home nor was there anything particularly exceptional about the Harriman family who lived there. The mom, Lucille Harriman, was a registered nurse, and her husband James worked for Air France. They had two children, 13-year-old Lucille and 12-year-old James. It was, for the most part, a pretty typical 1950s leave-it-to-beaver-style family. That is, if there was ever an episode of the old sitcom where it turned out the beaver's home was haunted. 
On February 4th, 1958, James Herman came home from work only to have his wife and kids tell him the craziest story he'd ever heard. According to Lucille, she was home with the kids when all three of them began hearing a series of strange popping noises coming from various parts of the house. When she got up to investigate, she discovered several bottles of common substances uncapped in different rooms throughout the house. This included a bottle of bleach in the basement utility room, a bottle of starch in the kitchen, and, perhaps most ominously of all, a small vial of holy water that she found open on her bedroom dresser. Each of these bottles had been sealed with twist-off metal or plastic caps. None of them were the types of lids that were meant to pop off like a cork. James didn't know what to make of the story. He was a practical man, and he was already formulating a theory that some sudden change in humidity or air pressure inside the house must have been to blame. He told his family to remain calm and not to tell anyone about the incident. It was probably just a one-time thing, after all. Or so he thought, until it happened again five days later, just as James and his family were sitting down to dinner. This time James got up to look around. He found a small bottle of nail polish burst open, as well as a bottle of rubbing alcohol, a jug of bleach, some laundry detergent, and once again the bottle of holy water on his wife's dresser. When bottles began popping open again the next night, James began to have his suspicions about who was really to blame for all the weird goings-on. Namely, his science-loving 12-year-old son, James Jr. James Sr. began to suspect his son was pulling a prank on the rest of the family by planting some carbonated capsules inside bottles around the house. This latest incident occurred on a Friday, and James Sr. spent the rest of his weekend secretly observing Jimmy to try to catch him in the act. Then on Sunday, several more bottles burst open, including a bottle of starch, some turpentine, and, as always, the bottle of holy water. This left James Sr. perplexed because he was certain there had never been a time when he had left his son out of sight long enough to have tampered with the bottles. James Sr. decided enough was enough and he burst in on a startled Jimmy in the bathroom, brushing his teeth and outright accused him of tampering with the bottles. Young Jimmy swore up and down he had nothing to do with it. It was at that precise moment when they both got a fright as a bottle of medicine began moving by itself across the top of the sink and tumbled into the basin. Then a bottle of shampoo slid off the counter and onto the floor with a thud. James Sr. was visibly shaken. He still looked around the bathroom half expecting to find some magnets or hidden fishing line that could explain the objects moving by themselves. But there was nothing. He didn't know what else to do, so he ended up calling the Nassau County Police Department and explaining his family's predicament. Though the lieutenant on duty figured the guy he was talking to must have been pulling a gag or, at the very least, needed some serious mental help. But James Harriman sounded so sincere and scared that the police department finally sent an officer out to the home to check things out. The officer that showed up was just as skeptical as everyone else, that is, until he was standing there inside the home and a bunch of bottles popped their lids right in front of him. From there, the Harriman family turned to the Catholic Church for help. Father William McLeod of the Church of St. William the Abbot performed a blessing on the house and sprinkled holy water in each of the rooms, but the incidents only increased in both frequency and ferocity after that. By now, word had leaked out to the press about the peculiar haunting incident inside the Harriman home. Soon, articles began appearing in newspapers and magazines around the country about the mysterious ghost that came to be known as Popper, 
This included articles in both Time and Life magazines, as well as radio news, and what would turn out to be the very first televised news report of a haunting incident in America. Following their newfound publicity, the Harrimans became bombarded with reporters and curiosity seekers from all around the country who either wanted to hear more about the ghosts for themselves or who offered up their own explanations for what was really going on. They received constant phone calls and letters from people who told them that they were being contacted by Martians, that their home was built on the site of an ancient Indian burial ground, or that Russian spies had set up a secret underground base beneath their feet. Sometimes they would receive phone calls from people in the middle of the night simply screaming repent into the receiver. But not all the people who contacted the family offering their assistance were quite so unhinged. A physicist from Long Island's Brookhaven National Laboratory came to the home with a bunch of equipment looking for magnetic anomalies around the property that might explain things. But these tests didn't turn up anything either. One day, Detective Joseph Tazi, who had been assigned to the case, was walking down the basement stairs when a bronze statue of a horse that weighed over 100 pounds came flying down the steps and crashed into his legs. Detective Tazi insisted there was no one else around when the horse hit him. Detective Tazi did his own due diligence by excluding as many logical explanations as he could. He checked with the Air Force to see if they'd been flying planes near the home that could have caused sonic booms or other vibrations. But the Air Force denied this. He got a building inspector as well as the local fire department to go through every square inch of the house to see if there were any issues with the pipes or the wiring that could explain the ghostly happenings but they both came up empty as well. Then Detective Tazi heard about a woman from Revere, Massachusetts who thought her house had been haunted only to learn that her chimney had been catching a downdraft that caused heavy air circulation to blow objects over in her house. So the Harrimans installed a cap on their own fireplace to prevent the same thing from happening. Yet objects continued moving around by themselves. By February 20th, the spirit, or whatever it was, was becoming more violent. One day, a glass figurine flew through the air and smashed against a desk. A bottle of ink popped its screw top and sailed across the room and into one of the walls. A sugar bowl flew off the kitchen table and nearly clocked Detective Tazi in the head. On February 24th, a large bookcase fell face down in Jimmy's room while no one was inside. Then the next night, while Jimmy was in the room doing his homework, his record player levitated off a shelf and flew 15 feet across the room. Other things kept happening as the days wore on. A small statue of the Virgin Mary flew 12 feet across the room and smashed into a wall. A large world globe rolled down the hallway off its pedestal right into Detective Tazi. A newspaper photographer from the London Evening News received the shock of a lifetime when he witnessed several of his flashbulbs lift up into the air and smash into a wall. This story became such big news in 1958 that it would eventually draw the attention of the parapsychology department at Duke University. Professor Rhine didn't really believe that the Harriman home was really haunted. Rather, in keeping with his ESP research, he theorized that the true culprit might have been one of the two children secretly manifesting their latent psychic abilities. Dr. Rhine believed that such abilities could sometimes appear in hormonal adolescence undergoing puberty. In the case of the Harriman incident, Dr. Ryan noted that Jimmy in particular appeared to be present at more than 75% of the ghostly encounters. Dr. Ryan sent one of his assistants, Dr. J. Gaither Pratt, to stay with the Harriman family and observe. 
Pratt and some of Ryan's other assistants had long been pushing for them to get out into the field more often. Ryan resisted for a long time, but Pratt and the others made the case to him that there was only so much they could learn looking at cards in a laboratory. But after Pratt arrived at the Harriman home, the ghost, known as Popper, appeared to go silent. During the several days Pratt stayed with the family, he didn't personally witness anything paranormal. Even still, he remained convinced by all the testimony of the many witnesses that this was no hoax. By then, the Popper appeared to begin winding down. On March 2nd, about a month after the Popper first manifested itself, a dish flew out of one of the kitchen cabinets and shattered on the floor. A night table flipped over, a bookcase toppled over, and a bowl of flowers tumbled off the dining room table. Then on March 10th, about a month after the ghostly occurrences began, the very last reported incident happened when a bottle of bleach in the basement blew its lid. This was the only time when Pratt was actually inside the house when something out of the ordinary occurred. After that, the spirit, or whatever had been going on, stopped just as abruptly as it started. James Harriman later told reporters he didn't care why the haunting had stopped, just that the ordeal was over for his family. There's never been any definitive explanation for what happened in the Harriman home. Skeptics remain convinced the entire incident was nothing more than an elaborate hoax perpetrated by one of the kids. While true believers think the home briefly became a portal to the afterlife. The fact that the story of what happened in the Harriman home became the first nationally televised haunting incident has helped the story live on throughout the following decades. It's also the incident that helped inspire the endless string of ghost investigation shows that are on still today. In fact, the incident became so infamous in ghostly lore that in the early 1980s, a pair of Hollywood screenwriters read about the Popper story and decided to incorporate elements of it into a screenplay they were writing for Steven Spielberg about a typical suburban family whose home suddenly becomes haunted. They changed the family's name and moved the incident to California where some greedy developers made the terrible decision to build a subdivision on top of an old cemetery, moving the headstones but leaving the bodies behind. They gave the film a title based on that famous old German word that roughly translates to noisy spirit. That word, and the title of the film, of course, is Poltergeist. J.B. Ryan finally retired from Duke University in 1962, And with him leaving, so too did the parapsychology lab close its doors. Duke initially proposed a plan to convert the lab into a more conventional facility for traditional psychology. But Ryan objected and instead moved his work into his own privately run institute, the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man. Throughout the 1970s, several more high-scoring subjects tested in J.B. Ryan's labs. They even tried retesting Hubert Pierce, although he was now in his 60s, and he never displayed any results like he did when he was a young man. J.B. Ryan died on February 20th, 1980 at age 85. After his death, several writers attempted to debunk Ryan's laboratory results, although some of that criticism seems just about as dubious as the claims that Ryan's results were. One writer claimed Hubert Pierce cheated during his tests, doing things like standing up on a chair to peer through a window at the researcher holding up the cards. The problem is no one ever saw him doing this, as well as the fact that there was no such window in the lab at the time. 
Another skeptic even suggested that Pierce must have climbed through the ceiling more than 30 times completely undetected and returned to his seat in order to spy on the researchers and see which card they were holding. That convoluted explanation alone makes me consider that ESP might be the simpler solution. If we can say anything about Professor Ryan's legacy is that he never wavered from his belief that there is more to the natural universe than we know, and that the powers of the mind are far greater than we can imagine. Ryan was once invited to participate in a televised exhibition of ESP with noted paranormal debunker James Randi. But Ryan politely declined. He believed wholeheartedly in the serious nature of his work, and he refused to turn it into a public spectacle. Shortly before his retirement, Ryan gave a speech expressing his hope for the future in which he said, There has never been a greater need to know what man has within his nature for use in self-understanding. Parapsychology had evolved, he said. It was no longer about reconnecting with the dead and gone, but with the hidden part of man's nature. He ended his speech by saying that science would be enabled after all its sweeping conquests of the outer worlds of space and time, of computers and molecules, of galaxies and microparticles, to catch up at last with man himself. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I just scratched the surface here of all the work J.B. Ryan's Institute at Duke University did investigating the paranormal. If you want to read a really great book on the subject, then I can highly recommend Unbelievable. Investigations into Ghosts, Poltergeist, Telepathy, and Other Unseen Phenomena from the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory by Stacey Horn. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank this week. Thank you to Trevor for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll post a link in the show notes. Besides that, I always encourage you to subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire backlog of shows. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.